We begin to open God's Word and read from Luke 22. If you have the Church Bibles, then this is page 1058. I'll give you a moment to find your place. We're going to be reading from verse 54. Luke 22, 54 to the end of the chapter. Then seizing him, that's Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the Most High Priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when, when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people Both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you're the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Let me pray as Andy comes up and brings God's word to us. Lord God, we thank you that we are able to listen to your word freely in this church. We thank you for Andy for the preparation he has done in listening to you. And I just pray that you would anoint his lips now so that he would speak your word boldly to us. And help us also as we listen to have hearts and minds that are ready to receive from you. And to give us the will also to change as needs be to follow you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, As Chris said, my name's Andy. And uh, together with my wife Maureen, this has been our home church for uh, something like 20 years. It's my privilege to open God's word uh, for us uh, this morning. What we normally do around about this time, and it's a good thing to do, is that we take a passage, we take them consistently, uh, we often go through them verse by verse to help us understand what the word of God is saying. But in my preparations uh, throughout these last couple of weeks, I've just felt that it was right to to raise above this passage a little bit. Of course, we're going to keep it very central to our thoughts. Uh, but to look 
before it and to look after it so that we might grasp the bigger picture. And I pray that that bigger picture will be a blessing to us this morning. Let's just recap very briefly. Two weeks ago, we found Jesus in that upper room with his closest friends, delighted to share with them uh, that meal, the Passover feast with them. And after that, he instigated this, what we call a feast of remembrance, such a simple thing and yet so profound that just by taking bread and wine, we remind ourselves of the body of the Lord Jesus given for us and the blood of the Lord Jesus spilled for us. And then the, the spotlight, and I don't know quite why this is, but, <clears throat> but Luke particularly focuses on Peter and conversations that the Lord Jesus in that upper room had with Peter. Now, of course, we call him Peter. Uh, <clears throat> and when you look right through the New Testament, m- m- the apostles, they call him Peter. But Peter was not his name, of course, and we have to remember right back, we go back three years to when Simon was first introduced by his brother Andrew to the Lord Jesus. And when it was first introduced, the Lord Jesus did an extraordinary thing, said an extraordinary thing. He said, you are Simon, but you will be Peter, Cephas, it might be in your Bible, which by interpretation is Peter. And it's a name of strength. It means rock. Now, here's a curious thing. I found this curious as I was studying this. Jesus gives this man, Simon, this new name, Peter, and yet he never uses it except once. And if I was to guess when that one occasion would be, I have to say, my mind would go straight to what we read in Matthew 16. That day, uh, not long before this, when Jesus had taken his disciples to the north of the country and he'd asked them the question, who do you say that I am? And on that day, Peter received a revelation from heaven and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He'd never seen it before. And, and Jesus was thrilled by this revelation. And he says, blessed are you, Simon. He's still calling him Simon. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John or son of Jonah, depending on how old your version of the Bible is. For this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And even though that conversation went on, and in that conversation, Jesus reminded Simon of his new name, he didn't use it. Only one occasion. And that one occasion was where we were two weeks ago, in that upper room. And and Peter had been full of self-confidence. He had just said to the Lord Jesus, I am ready to go to prison for you. I am ready to die for you. And Jesus said, I tell you this, verse 34 of chapter 22, I tell you, Peter, his name of strength, first time he's ever used it, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. I find it very interesting that Jesus waits for a period in Peter's life when he's going to be at his weakest 
that he reminds him and uses the name he's given him, this name of strength, Peter. And as I was just studying this, it it came to me so strongly that in life, sometimes, like Peter, we are weaker than we think we are. And yet, our faith is stronger than we think it is. Well, after that time in the upper room, they left. And they went to the Mount of Olives, just opposite the other hill, opposite the valley, the valley of Kidron that runs down the middle between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. It's just about a 20-minute walk. And there we were there last week, weren't we? And we remembered the anguish of the Lord Jesus at the prospect of the horror of what lay ahead of him. And there, in that garden of Gethsemane, with his words that we reminded ourselves of last week, when he says and prays to his father, not my will, but yours be done. There in that garden, Jesus began to provide the remedy for what had happened in another garden long ago, when the first man, Adam, had effectively said, not your will, but mine be done. And that attitude from that very first man has blighted our human nature ever since. And so we're born with that very same nature. We're born with the instinct to say to God, not your will, but mine be done. And there in Gethsemane, Jesus begins the process of reversing that so that we might know him, so that we might come to him. And then after that anguish in prayer that the the Lord Jesus endured, uh, we find they're now coming for him to arrest him. You, You might have asked yourself the question, well, why did they need Judas to betray him? Why didn't they just come up to the Mount of Olives? They knew who it was. Why didn't they just come up to the Mount of Olives and arrest the Lord Jesus? Well, there's a bit of a clue in verse 39 of chapter 22. It says that Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives as usual. It's where he stayed. But not just him, but hundreds and hundreds of other people. Remember when this is. This is the festival of the Passover. People from all over the land and from the surrounding countries made their way to Jerusalem. And at that time, the great temple of Jerusalem, which covered about 40 acres uh, in in its entirety, the city itself was only about 200 acres. So the temple represented about a fifth of the area of the city. In other words, the city was far too small to accommodate these hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people who had made their way to celebrate the Passover at Jerusalem. So what did they do? What did they do? Well, they stayed on the Mount of Olives. That's what Jesus did with his disciples, but that's what hundreds of other people did. And so these people who had come to arrest the Lord Jesus were picking their way through and around many families, campfires with people sitting around them, uh, makeshift shelters between the trees uh, where they were going to spend the night. That's why they needed Judas. And we have it recorded in John chapter 18, verse 2. It says, Now Judas knew the place 
because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And we're going to use, apart from Luke, we're going to use John's book uh, quite a bit this morning to help us get some detail, to help us paint this big picture of what is going on. Because from here on in, Luke begins to focus on Peter. Remember, let's go back to that upper room. Remember a, a conversation that Jesus had with, well, Jesus was still calling him Simon. He said, Simon, verse 31, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. Now, what's not obvious is in the Greek, that you is a plural you. Jesus is saying, Satan wants to sift all of you, all the followers of the Lord Jesus. He wants to rubbish their faith. But Jesus went on and said, I have prayed for you. And that's a singular you. Jesus is saying to Peter, this is very personal, I've been praying for you that your faith may not fail. So this is when the focus in Luke's book, he turns it on to Peter. And he keeps it on Peter now. Jesus has been arrested and we read in verse 54 of our passage that Peter followed at a distance. Why pick out Peter? They all followed at a distance. Jesus had already told them, you're all going to fall away. All of his followers would let him down, but the spotlight remains on Peter. And then we find him, and we track him through Luke 22. We find that he's take, he enters the courtyard of the chief priest, Caiaphas. But if we read John's account, we realize that that's a private courtyard, it's it's like your own garden. It's got a gate stopping other people coming in. It's not a public place. Peter just couldn't walk into it. But John, again, gives us the answer. In John 18, verse 16, it shows that there were there was another disciple. Now, we're not absolutely certain who this disciple was, but we think that it could very likely be John because when John in his own book refers to another disciple, when he doesn't name that disciple, it's his way of often referring to himself. But whether it's John or whether it's another disciple, we find that this other disciple, his family had connections with the chief priest's family. And he was able to go to the person on the gate and get Peter in. So it's not just Peter in the courtyard. There's at least one other disciple there, but the spotlight is on Peter. And, and, Peter, and John, in his book, gives us a couple of other uh, little clues as to, uh, as to the atmosphere uh, of, that, of that night. He tells us in John 18, 18, that it was cold and that they had kindled a fire. Now, Chris, can I ask you to put the slide up, please? Oh, it's there. Brilliant. Um, Because here I think the Greek will help us. Well, I hope you found that helpful. Let's put the interpretation up. The next slide. That's that's the Greek word, anthrokion. If you've got a coal fire, it's where we get our word anthracite from. But John is very particular. This fire is a fire of coals. Is that significant? It may be. We're going to leave it there, and we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. Meanwhile, let's avert our gaze back to the Lord Jesus. What is happening to the Lord Jesus while this is going on? And again, Luke, in his book, 
omits so much. If we just took what Luke said, uh, we're restricted to verses 63 to 65, where it says that the guards, these would be the temple guards, these, this was a Jewish contingent, by the way, who had arrested him. These were Jewish guards uh, who were mistreating him, and they were ridiculing him, and they were abusing him, and they were being violent towards him, and that's bad enough. But that's not all that the Lord Jesus was enduring. And if we take the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, and we put them all together, we find that there's a preliminary trial, first of all, uh, in front of a, a guy called Annas, who was the chief priest before the current chief priests. Uh, so there was a trial before him. And then Jesus was interrogated by the current chief priests, Caiaphas. And these trials, first of all, they were illegal. The, the Jews of the time had very strict laws about how, uh, how um, justice should happen in their courts. And they were very clear, those laws, that if you were trying someone on a capital case, in other words, uh, that if he was found guilty, it would mean death, you could not hold that at night. It was illegal. And yet all through this night, these the ruling councillors, the, 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 the chiefs of the, the temple, the chief priests, these senior people, they were doing what they ought not to be doing. And they were trying Jesus at night. And we find something else as well, that not only was this illegal, but it was also corrupt. If you look at Matthew 26, they, Matthew 26 makes it very clear that these people violently interrogating the Lord Jesus, they were not looking for evidence, but they were looking for false evidence. They were not looking for witnesses. They were looking for false witnesses. And many came forward to try to convey the guilt of the Lord Jesus. And then we get to verse 66 of our passage, and that starts with the words, at daybreak. And that's very significant, because now the whole ruling council, the Sanhedrin, is meeting together at daybreak. What are they doing? Well, they're meeting together to give legitimacy to what's been going on illegally through the night. Now the sun's come up. Now they're able to hold a trial, but they've already decided the guilt of the Lord Jesus. And when we read what Jesus said and what they asked, again, we don't get a great, uh, much detail in Luke's account. But we find that in everything, Jesus tells the truth. But for them, they twist that truth into blasphemy. And they think they have enough, well, they have enough to condemn him. They even have enough to kill him. But the only avenue open to them is death by stoning for blasphemy. And they don't want that. They want this innocent man to be crucified. And only a Roman court can, can ensure that someone is, can condemn someone to be crucified. It was the most horrendous death that had been invented until that time. I think we've shared before from this platform that it's where we get our word excruciating from. Excruciating means of the cross. 
They wanted him crucified. And so although they had found him guilty in their own court and in their own way, we find that they take him to Pilate. They take him for Roman trial. And that's next week. So I'm not going to go there at all and tread on the toes of who's coming next week. Let's back up a bit. Long before this, sometime during that night, we're not absolutely certain when, but sometime during that night, maybe when Jesus was being moved from one place to another, maybe when he was on the balcony above that courtyard down below where Peter was, Jesus was able, it says, to look straight at Peter. And what a look that must have been. And the scripture records that when Peter caught the eye of the Lord Jesus, he was distraught. He was devastated. He went from the place in floods of bitter tears. Why? Because in that courtyard, just before that look, the cock had crowed and Peter had remembered the words of the Lord Jesus Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. We've reminded ourselves already what Peter's reaction to that was. He didn't believe it. He said to Jesus, it's never going to happen like that. I'm ready to go to prison for you. I'm ready to die for you. And now he's realized that what Jesus said would happen has happened. And he has betrayed the one that he loves. He's let down the one that he loves. He's disowned. The one that he loves, and we find Peter now, a broken man. He's absolutely devastated. He realizes for himself that he's not as strong as he thought he was. He realizes that actually he's a rubbish follower of the Lord Jesus. He's failed him. He's disowned him. And I guess Peter was thinking, there's no coming back from this Now let's just focus back for a moment on the Lord Jesus and how he has dealt and is going to deal with Peter. And by the way, we're not here just to learn history. So I don't mind, I don't mind telling you what Jesus' attitude was towards Peter because we're told in Romans that God has, shows no favoritism. In other words, what Peter's attitude was toward Peter is, 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 sorry, is Jesus' attitude towards us. The, the prayers that the Lord Jesus prays for Peter are the prayers that the Lord Jesus prays for us. His love for Peter is no different than his love for us. So as we look at how he relates to Peter, we can remind ourselves and be so thankful that this is how our Savior relates to us. Think how he cared for Peter. Think back in that upper room. Let's, let's go backwards just one, one more time. Verse 32 of chapter 2. The very fact that Jesus says, I've been praying for you, Peter. And yet when Jesus uttered those words, he knew of the horror that was going to be his over the next few hours. The violence, the ridicule, the death. He knew all that, and yet he takes, knowing all that, he takes one of his followers aside and he says, I've been praying for you. And you know, and I, I know Lionel Clargo's not here this morning, he's at another church, but 
uh, I met him and I, when I was studying this, my mind went to his wife, and uh, Mavis, and I, I asked Lionel's permission just to say this uh, because it shows the spirit of Jesus in his followers. For those who don't know, Mavis Clargo is Lionel's wife. We lost her to cancer three years ago on Boxing Day. But while she was dying, there was another uh, friend who also had cancer. Uh, and it wasn't a cancer that would kill him, but it was a cancer from which he would have to have very invasive surgery, life-changing surgery, and it made him very depressed. But if you speak to that friend of mine today, he would say, do you know a highlight of all the things that he went through was that he received a letter of encouragement from Mavis. That's the spirit of Jesus in his children. Can you see? He would say, how could, her, how could she be thinking of me when her own death from cancer was just around the corner? But she did. And it thrilled him. And it strengthened him. And it encouraged him. And this is the Jesus who is our saviour. And we just see a little picture of it with knowing all the horror that is lying in front of him, nevertheless, is concerned for humankind. And he's concerned for Peter and he says, I've been praying for you. Uh, Now I want to fast forward uh, to uh, uh, quite a time. uh, After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and this isn't in Luke, so I know I'm not treading on any toes of people who are going to come later on. After the resurrection... Some ladies went to the tomb and they met there a messenger from God, an angel. And we read this in Mark chapter 16, verses 6 to 7. And this messenger said to the ladies, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He has risen. And then this is the bit that caught my eye. The messenger goes on with the message. Go Tell his disciples and Peter. Did you get that? Tell his disciples and Peter. That's why I think Peter probably thought at that time that he had forfeited any right to be called a disciple. in In his own heart, he had just thrown it away. He realized that he was too weak. And when push came to shove, he had let the Savior down so badly. But this is the message that Jesus leaves for him. After the resurrection, the messenger says to the ladies, go, tell my, make sure Peter hears this, he tells them. And Peter, and this was the message, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. And now, as we end, I'm going to go to John and chapter 21, because John's the only book where this is recorded. What happened in Galilee? Those disciples and Peter, they went to Galilee. And there, sure enough, they did meet with the risen Lord Jesus. And Jesus does this. And again, our focus is on Peter, but that's because we can put ourselves in Peter's place. Now, the first thing that Jesus does to Peter is he takes him back to that day, probably about three years earlier, 
when Peter had decided that he wanted to follow the Lord Jesus, seriously follow him, he gave up everything, his business, everything to follow the Lord Jesus. But it happened, you'll remember, uh, in Luke and chapter 5, it happened that Peter, who was a fisherman, he'd been fishing all night, they caught nothing, and when they came back, Jesus said to them, let down your nets for a catch. And Peter didn't think it was worth doing, except that Jesus had told him to do it. And so he did. And he let down his net, and they got such a huge catch, it says that the nets began to break. And that was, if you like, the catalyst for Peter to say, I'm going to follow this man. I'm going to commit my life to this man. And we read that they left everything. They left their boats, they left their nets, and they followed the Lord Jesus. Well, Jesus on that beach after the resurrection takes them back to that point. He, he's on the beach, Jesus, but the, the, the disciples and Peter are out in a boat. What have they been doing? They've been fishing all night. What have they caught? Nothing. He's recreating the scene of commitment three years ago. And Jesus again says to them, let down your nets for a catch. And they do. And they get such a huge catch that they're surprised that the nets don't even break. So Jesus takes Peter back to that day of commitment. And the next thing Jesus does is he takes, Jesus, he takes Peter back to that place of denial, to that courtyard. How does he do that? Well, it says that on the beach, in verse 9 of John 21, uh, on the beach he made a fire. Chris, can we have the next one? Oh, it's there. No, no, that one. That's fine. Look at this. We're in John 21, verse 9. What is it? You, you now speak Greek. Yeah, you know that what John is saying is that Jesus made a fire of coals. What's extraordinary about this? What I find extraordinary is that there are only two places in the whole of the New Testament where this Greek phrase is used. One, in the courtyard, when Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times, and now today on the beach in Galilee where Jesus had made a fire. It's been my privilege and the privilege of my wife too to have taken many groups uh, to, well, probably this very beach. And when we've got groups on this beach on the shores of Galilee, we've said to them, if you were going to make a fire, how would you do it? And they look around and they say, well, we'd use the driftwood. And there's lots of it coming in from the, the sea because now the Sea of Galilee, the uh, the uh, the level of it is controlled. But in those days, it wasn't controlled. Sometimes with lots of rain, it would be much higher uh, and other times much lower. Lots of driftwood would have come and stayed on the beach. If you look around the edges, there would have been reeds which get dried in the sun. Wonderful kindling for a fire. If you look behind you, there's trees. They'd have used fallen twigs or branches from those trees. But no, Jesus on that beach makes a fire of coals. And I think he's using this sense of smell. You know, whenever I smell porridge oats, my mind goes back to my grandma's house where she used to make it for me. It's a wonderful thing, the sense of smell. And I'm absolutely certain that when Peter smelt that smell of burning coals, his mind would have gone back to that dreadful day, that dreadful night in the courtyard when he had denied the Lord Jesus three times around that burning coal, uh, uh, fire of coals. So Jesus takes 
him back to the courtyard. And then after he's prepared breakfast for them, he takes Peter off by by himself and he says to him, still using the name Simon, Simon, do you love me? And Simon says, yes, I do. But Jesus just doesn't do it once. He does it three times. Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? What is he doing? I think what he's doing is recognizing that Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times in that courtyard. And now Jesus has taken him back to that point of failure. And he's giving him three opportunities to declare his love for the Lord Jesus. And after the third time, Peter says these, and I think they're wonderful words, because they're words which are true for each one of us. Peter says, Lord, you know all things. Isn't that a comfort? That you, your whole life, even everything hidden is an open book to the Lord Jesus. Peter said, Lord, you know all things. And you know that I love you. Far from being a rubbish disciple, a rubbish follower of the Lord Jesus, Peter was strengthened and went on to strengthen the early church in a tremendous way. He was a man that God was able to use so greatly. I've just got one verse. Uh, Chris, if you just put this one verse up, please. Look at this. This is what Peter wrote. We've got two of his letters in, the new te- in our New Testament. And, and I've taken this verse. We had it, I think, three weeks ago. 1 Peter 5, 8 to 10. He is saying to the early church, this is what the devil's like. He's looking to devour you and resist him. Standing firm in the faith. What was Jesus' prayer? Up in the upper room to Peter, Satan wants to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed that your faith will not fail. Remember what we said then. You are weaker than you think you are, but faith is stronger than you think it is. So, Peter is now saying, stand firm in your faith. And what's going to happen? The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong. How does he know this? Because he's experienced it himself. And that time that for him was the most devastating time, the time when he was most distraught, the time when he was at his weakest, now he's able to say to others, if you feel like that, look at Jesus, look at God, this is what God will do for you. And I've put it at the bottom. And we find, They didn't sign their letters at the end like we do. They don't say yours faithfully, Peter, but they sign it right at the very beginning. Look at verse 1, chapter 1 of the first letter of Peter. And he says, Peter, an apostle, of Jesus Christ. Peter is using now the name that Jesus gave him, this name of strength. And boy, was he strong in the Lord Jesus. And maybe you, like Peter, are going through a a rubbish time in your own experiences. Maybe you're going through things that you wouldn't wish upon yourself. Be encouraged by this, that when we look at Peter, who went through that experience, he was able to turn it for good. His faith was strong, and he was able to help other people who were, at some future time, suffering weakness, doubt, and he was able to strengthen them. 
And I do believe that whatever experiences come our way in life, God is able to use them in you to help others who are going through similar experiences. But maybe also, and I'll end with this, maybe you can identify with Peter when he thought he was an utter failure. Maybe you can remember a time like Peter could, that time when he had committed his life to the Lord Jesus and now it it seemed like nothing. He had let him down. He had broken his promises to the Lord Jesus. And as I said, he felt that he was not even worthy to be a disciple. Maybe through our thoughts this morning, the Lord Jesus, that same Lord Jesus, will, like Peter, take you back to that point where you made a commitment to follow the Lord Jesus. Maybe, like Peter, Jesus this morning will take you back to that point of denial, that point when somehow it went wrong. Somehow now it wasn't relevant for you anymore. Maybe he'll rekindle in you that, that wonder that you had that first time you ever committed your life to the Lord Jesus. And maybe this morning he might be giving you in your hearts, my heart too, the opportunity to once again come to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Amen.